You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas This Week. You're listening to episode 154. What's going on, Mark? What's going on, Jake, is that we're in the Weatherford booth at Society of Petroleum Engineers' um, annual technical conference and expo. This is 2018. We've got people walking by on the floor with adult beverages, and for some reason, we don't have adult beverages, which is not fair. Um, but if you're walking by, we have a Roman mic. We're going to do our normal news show. We'd love for you to join us. So that's what's going on, Jake. Let's just jump right into it. But before we jump into it, reviews. If you like the show, do me a favor. It takes all of two minutes. Leave us a review on iTunes. It's the number one way to support the show. We've got a couple of good ones here. Interesting, concise, and informative. Good work by U23640 from USA. Great podcast. And then great informative podcast by Meg the Data Whisper. That one's good. Meg the Data Whisper. The podcast is a great way to keep us up to speed on trending topics important to the oil and gas professional. I have worked on the IT side of oil and gas for 20 years and can testify that this is difficult to keep up with the business side. Speak at the PPDM Houston Data Management Luncheon. Okay, I just told myself. I went and spoke there. Uh, you sparked a lot of interesting conversation in the data management community. Exactly what those luncheons aim to do. Thank you, Meg the Data Whisper. All right, so ready to get the news stories? Let's do it. All right, what's up first? All right, first one is titled, Why Peak Oil Demand Doesn't Matter. All right, so let me give you a high-level overview. Notably, it's, it expects global oil consumption to continue growing by an annual average of 1.1 million barrels per day through... 2030. However, natural gas is projected to grow at an even faster rate. So the report projects that oil's global energy market share will decline from 32% in 2017 to 26.6% in 2050. And this will put it in the second place in 2050, slightly behind natural gas with a 27.3% share. So this is a good article. The one problem I have with it is they talk about around 2035, the rise in electrical vehicles are going to slow the demand for oil and gas, and that's not true. Yep. What people don't realize is about 75% of what makes a Tesla a Tesla comes from hydrocarbons. Exactly. Those blades in that windmill, hydrocarbons. The paint on that windmill, hydrocarbons. So our market is changing as an industry. We're using less and less oil and gas for fuel, but more of it to make stuff. And as an industry, we really don't care. As long as you buy hydrocarbons, we can do whatever you want to with it. So, so good article. The peak oil demand is something that's going to happen as far as vehicle consumption of natural gas and, and gasoline and diesel and everything for fuel. But it's not going to change how important hydrocarbons are to vehicles. So don't get worried. If you're in the industry, we're here forever. Next article, the EIA, the Energy Information Administration. Uh, is indicated that there's a growing shortage of pipeline at takeaway capacity. We've talked about this on numerous episodes, especially over the last year, particularly in the Permian Basin of West Texas and Southeast New Mexico, which is resulting in some companies reallocating capital initially earmarked for Permian drilling to other areas in which they produce. Yeah, so the problem with this article is what people don't realize is that takeaway capacity in all of the basins, including the Permian, was built out to handle the current level of production from 1975, right? Yeah. So there's takeaway capacity there. Uh, we just came back from uh, two weeks ago from Midland, and I have never in my entire life seen so many massive earth-moving machines in one place. Those That's pipeline insane. guys are, are blowing and going. They're putting pipeline in as fast as they can. We actually think that in about uh, 2026, 2027, there's going to be an oversupply of capacity between the Permian and Gulf of Mexico, which then means the operators are, are be given the upper-hand advantage from a business point of view, not the midstream company. So do I think this constraint is moving capital to other basins? Not really. I think those decisions were based on the company's ability to be profitable in those basins, regardless of what the takeaway capacity is today. 
Yeah, I think it's more of a diversification play rather than it is a pipeline shortage play. Yep, agreed 100%. All right, let's talk about something controversial. ExxonMobil and Chevron will join the Global Energy Giants and Climate Initiative reversing the original position. So it's uh, ExxonMobil, Chevron, and Oxy will become the first U.S. energy companies to join the oil and gas climate initiative. Uh, members are pledging to cut emissions and boost energy efficiency and contribute to up to a billion dollars uh, in a fund to support clean tech and business models. So this is 100% legit. So in our industry, say 15 years ago, when we talked about clean energy, it was a bit of a marketing play, right? Big of a public perception thing. We're in it both feet. What people don't realize is if I wanted to slash carbon uh, emissions in the, in the world, the number one way I can do it is switch from coal-generated electricity to natural gas, right? So, of course, Exxon and Chevron supports this because where do you buy the natural gas from? Yep. From them, right? And then when you look at it a deeper layer, you know, Exxon's doing some really cool stuff around biofuels, specifically algae. A lot of people in the audience may not know this, but hydrocarbons are still being farmed. It's a natural process that's been going on, yep. and it's continued going. Exxon's found a way to speed that up in a freshwater algae that you can grow in, in a really kind of almost hostile environments. So as an industry, we support any type of fuel. You know, As humans, we start out in biofuels. We start out burning wood. As we went through time, that energy mix has changed. That energy mix will change in the future. Who better to shepherd that than some of the large super majors? I mean, Exxon and Chevron typically don't make big mistakes. Yep. So this is right in their sweet spot. And and for the second go around with renewables, now that the industry is looking at, can we make money at it? And so it's not just a public perception marketing place. Like, can we actually make money getting into this? And so now it's legit. And the answer to that is yes. So, um, I, you know, I expected this to have happened. Now, I can make fun of some of the old Exxon guys who, who used to look at me and go, we're not an energy company. We're an oil company, right? So even those guys are having to change a little bit how they think about our industry, yep. which I think is good. So offshore investment levels are set to rise in 2019 after decreasing each year during the industry downturn. Uh, so this will be the first time that shale investments will not overtake offshore. The number of offshore projects sanctioned in 2017 rose 50% year on year and close to 100 offshore projects will be sanctioned this year. And the industry is committed to spending $100 billion over the next few years. Yeah, so this is this is the the more inexpensive oils to think of on the shelf in, in the Gulf of Mexico, now starting to compete with the shell plays, which is something we predicted two years ago, that our competition isn't other players in the industry, isn't OPEC, it's our own our own industry, right? Yeah. We, because of efficiencies we've driven offshore in shallow water, and because we're looking at doing things like standardization, the shallow water guys offshore now should be able to compete with the shale guys. And not quite yet today, but another couple of years they will. How cool is that? All that's going to do is keep prices low for the consumer, keep supply high, so that these countries out there that need to raise their rural agrarian citizens up to modern lifestyles can do it because now they have access to cheap, abundant, reliable energy. Provided by who? Us. Hey, Jake, let's stop for a second. Hey, if you're in the audience and you're doing something more than just drinking a beer and you have any questions for us, we have Patrick walk around with the microphone. Feel free to jump in at any time or not. <laughs> Go ahead, Jake. That's the next one. All right. Houston-based investment bank to collaborate with Google Cloud. So a uh, small little Houston investment bank called Tudor Pickering & Holt, some of you guys might have heard of them, has struck a partnership with the Google Cloud arm of California-based Alphabet Company, which owns Google. So formerly TPH is becoming a Google Cloud customer. We were actually talking with Weatherford about them actually being a Google Cloud customer earlier as well. I feel like this is pretty relevant. So they're getting access to the platform's uh, computing analytics and machine learning technology. But informally, uh, there's some opportunity for companies to pool their expertise in the energy and technology industries. So uh, I think it was Maynard Holt said, informally, they are a technology advisor to us. And informally, we are an energy advisor to them. 
you're going to do a lot of great things together in comparing notes. Yeah, so I know TPHUL, they're moving, trying to move themselves out of the investment bank world and into the technology world, which I think is genius by now. Heavy push. Yeah. But how cool is it, people? Like, there's now a section of Google called Google Oil. When Google invests in something, it's not a mistake, right? And you may not know this. Microsoft also has a dedicated oil and gas sales practice. So does Oracle. So does SAP. So does Amazon Web Services. Our industry is becoming a tech industry. And the tech giants see the market potential, see the business they can generate, see how they can help us. The one thing they don't know is they don't know oil and gas, right? Yeah. So this is almost a marriage made in heaven. We, we can use the support. We can use the heavy lifting, but we know how to run our industry, which they don't. So I think this is a marriage made in heaven. I think they're going to drive efficiencies on a degree we've never seen ever in our industry. And at the same time, things like this knowledge drain is happening because of all the old guys like me leaving the workforce. This is going to make it much easier for the new people coming in to learn and get up speed and be safe and effective. I really think in 20 years, the oil and gas industry is going to look like Silicon Valley. You and I have talked about that before, but I think it's yep. going to be sexy. It's going to be fast. It's had this flexible workforce. And here's some signs right here that we're starting to move that way. Yeah, and, and our conversations today here at Weatherford, especially we're talking with Minoj and about their, their software that they've been working on and kind of their vision moving forward. And I think they're going to be leaders in that space too. Yeah, yeah. how cool is it when service companies start believing they're a tech company? Not saying it, but start believing. This is what happened at HSE years ago. Years ago, 10, 15 years ago, you know, having a zero incident today was something that people talked about at a high level. But then once you walked out of the meeting room, people went, eh, you can't ever do it. Then eventually some brave person said, we can't have a zero incident today. And now look how far we've come. I mean, when I got started in this industry, you would measure the experience of a roughneck by how many fingers he was missing. Now that's gone. That's awesome. I think there's another example of how we're moving forward in that toward a technology future that just benefits everybody. Yep. So another Houston-based oil and gas company is building its own frac sand mine uh, near College Station. And so they're joining the likes of... Uh, EOG Resources and Pioneer Natural Resources, uh, who have both done the same thing. This is just another essentially vertical play, bringing more things in-house, driving more efficiencies. We've seen this water hauling now. We're seeing with the frac sand. I mean, think about it. If you can cut significant amount of cost per ton for the frac sand, why wouldn't you? Yeah, so supply chain logistics is an issue for our entire industry, upstream, midstream, downstream, and service. And it's because we don't like change. Well, we need to change. And so in this story, this is a good story. They're talking about they used to haul sand from up to 180 or 200 miles away. Now they can haul sand 10 miles away. I mean, not just the money savings and the cost savings, but think of things like just-in-time delivery. This frac sand mine is so close now that the operator doesn't have to stockpile as much of it, right, which is less of an environmental footprint. The fact that you're only uh, moving it for 10 miles instead of 180 miles, there's less people involved, which means you can have less lost time instances. This is awesome for everybody. Not to mention, they're creating mining jobs next to College Station. So all the people out there getting a French degree, I hate to tell you, this probably be the one job you could get is in the mine right next to your school. Nothing gets people a French degree. All right, Houston area petrochemical. Companies are facing a tough hiring environment. Employers are looking to hire talent in the petrochemical industry will still face a tough hiring environment for the next five to eight years, whether it's construction workers or permanent plant employees. We've seen this in upstream, we've seen this in midstream, and now we're obviously seeing this in, in downstream. But one of the things that's kind of stood out to me in this article was that they're looking for more workers that are technically savvy. Yeah, so this is coming at our industry like a freight train is this lack of talent. And I don't care what part of the industry you're in, where you are, there's not enough young people going to school to get degrees that we need, things like engineering, project management, accounting. 
then layer on top of that this negative public perception. And unless you go to college here or in Kongsberg, Norway, or in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and you're a young person, you don't want to come work in our industry, right? And as an industry, we need to own that. That's our fault, right? For the last 50 years, when anybody says something wrong in the public eye, we don't raise our hand to dispute that. And we need to change that. We need to show the world's young people this is a great, wonderful, beautiful industry to work in. Highly prosperous, pays really well. You get time off with your family, you get to travel the world. And we need to do a better job of doing that. And as an organization, we're working on that right now, Jake. We have some stuff in the future to help further spread this word so that our world's young people know how great an industry this is. So speaking of drawing people into the industry, the next article dives deep. Uh, Houston Business Journals did an article on how much petroleum engineers make in various cities in Texas. I thought this was really interesting. So Houston has the highest concentration of petroleum engineers in the country with 10,950 in 2017. Uh, statewide, Texas employs 17,840 petroleum engineers in 2017 who earned an average of $170,450 annually. The next highest state with the highest amount of petroleum engineers was Oklahoma, which employed 2,380, who made an average of 129,120 in 2017. So in Texas, Dallas has the second highest number of petroleum engineers with 2,060, followed by Midland with 1,310. Petroleum engineers in Dallas averages slightly higher annual pay than in Houston. Uh, so 179,000 versus 177,000 uh, in Houston. Uh, in Midland, petroleum engineers earned 129,000 in 2017, uh, and then lastly, Corpus Christi, where there was 210 petroleum engineers in 2017, they earned an average salary of 159,000. So, the moral of the story is: if you're a petroleum engineer, work in Dallas or Houston. Don't go to Midland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. We've been tracking this for about three years now, and it's hard to get really accurate data globally. I can get really accurate data from the U.S. and in Europe. But if we look at the number of people that are entering petroleum engineering degrees and we look at the expected demand today in 2018, there's about a 23% gap. Literally, there's 23% more jobs available than there are people going to school. And that gap is widening. What are we going to do as an industry when you cannot hire a petroleum engineer? My fear is we're getting another price war where you know company A pays X, company B pays X plus 10, and so on and so on. And that's not good for anybody. It's not good for our industry. It's not good for the employee that makes three times what he should make, but then as soon as things slow down, he's the first one to get cut. So what I'm hoping is that we have more people come to school to become petroleum engineers. At the same time, Jake, I think you and I both see that technology can pick up a lot of the mundane stuff that petroleum engineers do day to day right now. Yeah. We can free them from having to go out there and find the data, crunch the numbers, clean it up, that would free up their time to do actual more true petroleum engineering work. Yep, 100% agree. All right, last article. Let's get this wrapped up. Uh, Canada orders a new review of the Trans Mountain Pipeline and bid to revive the project. So Canada's federal government instructed on Friday that the National Energy Board to review the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion project again, this time taking into account the impact of the expected higher oil tanker traffic off of the Gulf of, uh, Gulf of Coast of British Columbia. Yeah, it's. do we have any Canadians walking by? You know, Canada is struggling as, as, as different states and as a country in trying to figure out how important the oil and gas industry is to them. It's a huge employer. It brings a lot of taxes to the various uh, uh, provinces in Canada. But then there are people that necessarily don't support it. And the one of the things I find interesting is the anti-oil and gas activists took them a long time. They couldn't go after Canada's upstream industry head on. They tried it and failed several times. So they came at it sideways. If they can kill the pipeline project, you can't get the hydrocarbons to market, in which case there's no reason to actually produce hydrocarbons. And that's what's going on. And so I hope for our, our and, and we have the same problem here in the States, although not to the same degree. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that there's some clear heads up there. There's some early signs that 
some of the bigger political leaders up there realize that this is not good for the country. And the funny thing for, for me is the side that seems to recognize that the most is the left side of their government, which is you would not think would see the benefit of working with oil and gas. But that's how it should be. It should be that instead of us butting heads, that the industry comes together, the politicians, and works together to come out with a solution that benefits everybody. And I'm hoping that's what's going to happen there. I'm hoping that's actually what's going to happen here as well. But um, it's just a shame that you have so many things on hold because they can't get these pipeline infrastructure problems built. Yep. All right, so that's all the news articles. If anybody wants to ask a question, Patrick's walking around with the microphone. He does that here, and he also, I heard, does it at home when he's by himself. So, you know, anytime you just need a microphone, just find Patrick. One of the cool things, we don't have one here, but if you've listened to the show for any length of time, you've heard us talk about this Red Wing offshore bag. It has become a cult item. People fight over it. People offer us ridiculous amounts of cash. Everybody here can pull their phone out right now and go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Enter your information. We give one lucky winner a week. No purchase necessary. See official site for rules and details. And Jake, do we have a rate count? 1142, up 1%. A good solid number there. Events on deck, we have our Oil & Gas Global Network super happy hour. This thing sells out every month. It's been called the best oil & Gas networking event in Texas. It used to be Houston. Now I'm here in Texas. It's going to be October 2nd, and then we'll go back to our regular last Tuesday of the month. There will be a link in the show notes. If you like this event, SPEATC, and you want to learn about this event and more, we have a, a monthly oil & Gas events newsletter where once a month we take all events from all the interwebs, put it in your inbox for free. That link will also be in the show notes. And then if you want Jake and I to come talk and say, hey, your booth at a conference? Right. Your school, your uh, sales or marketing organization, let us know. We'll be happy to share the details. We have First Friday Q&A, so if you go to the website, oilandgasthisweek.com, click Ask a Question. If we read your question on the air, you get a big shout-out. And while you're there, give us your email. This way we can update you on what's going on. We promise not to spam you. Jake, I'm ready for an adult beverage. Ready Me to get too. out of here? All right, folks, remember, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week Podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.